in love and steadfast love and slow to anger, that's really good news for us because, I mean, some of the things that we do and say, how quickly we provoke the anger of one another, and we think how easily we should provoke yours as well, and yet you are, you're kind and you're patient. Those are just a few of the reasons why we should worship you, like with all that we have. And there are thousands upon thousands of those reasons. And it's good for us, Lord, to recall those reasons to help fuel our faith and genuine heartfelt worship to you. And so I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that that song reminds us that death is not the end of our singing. It is simply a, a, a hiccup in the road, and the song continues on as we go to be with you. But only there we see, and we are singing with the one that we are beholding by sight. Right now we sing to the one that we behold by faith, but then I can't imagine, Lord, what that singing is going to be like, but look forward to it. We thank you, Lord, for this time tonight, and may we be blessed by your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 41 is where we'll be tonight. Um, we're, we've, we've come to the end of book one, and so I just, I have a little bit that I want to say tonight, so message might be just a few minutes longer than it usually is, um, but <laughs> some of you are smiling at that comment. <laughs> Um, we come to the end of, uh, of book one here, and there's so I just want to share a few things with you guys personally. Um, a few things that I've learned in preaching through the Psalms. One is that preaching through the Psalms can be somewhat difficult because um, they're poetic and they don't read like a New Testament epistle, therefore, they don't normally preach like a New Testament epistle, and epistles are way easier to preach than than poetry, especially Hebrew poetry, something that, like, I'm not a poetry guy. I don't, tech, I don't tend to read a lot of poetry, let alone, like, Hebrew poetry. So there's a little bit of a disconnect sometimes, but it's been good, I think, um, for me in that way in particular. Um, I've learned that it's good to read through, because of the poetic nature of the Psalms, it's good to read through the Psalms, um, the Psalm, if you're going to study one, read through it in its entirety, several times through, so you get kind of the main idea, because sometimes the main idea of the psalm isn't in the first verse. Sometimes it's not even in the middle. Sometimes it's at the end, and so as you're reading through it, you're getting a flow for what's the main theme that's being communicated, right? These psalms, they're songs, so like in a way, you're looking for the chorus. What's the part of the psalm that stands out that's easily repeatable, kind of like the heart of the song, and then you build kind of the, your understanding of the rest of the psalm around kind of the heartbeat of what that psalm was about. I thought, I think that's helpful. I've learned that as well. And I've learned, I've come to ask myself two questions as I'm going through the psalms as well that I think are helpful for us all. Number one, how does this psalm point me to Christ? And how does this psalm help me make sense out of my life in Christ? Which is what, which is what we talked about actually when we first started going through the psalms. The two questions that I have written at the top of my Bible here are those two questions. As a reminder, how does this psalm help me make sense out of 
my life in Christ? And how does the psalm help point me to Christ in particular? Um, o. Palmer Robertson said this about the, um, the psalms, specifically book one. He found that the great theme through book one was this theme of confrontation. And I'd say that, that was, that's a pretty good assessment. Like David seems to just always be being confronted and dealing with something, somebody, some issue. Um, and he says, though, but in the broader context, it reminds us that there is a spiritual reality of God and his people um, with and against Satan and his people. And so it's always kind of couched in this larger reality. Everything that David goes through isn't just physical or practical or daily in its nature. The, way, the war that he wages isn't against flesh and, blown, uh, flesh and bone, like Ephesians tells us, just like our battle isn't against flesh and bone. There's a spiritual reality and component that's going on, and David, you see that in his life as he pours his heart out in the Psalms. I think it's uh, and good and important for us to remember that Psalms open, the book of Psalms itself opens with obviously Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 do a good job of setting us up to understand the rest of the Psalms in many ways. Um, Luther would say this about the Psalms in general, the Psalms are a little Bible wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. And I think that, that if you've read through all of the Psalms, you would, you would see that as well. It's a little Bible in which the entirety of all the Bible is so briefly and beautifully um, comprehended. And I think that we see that, especially in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Um, Psalm 1 starts off with, you know, who the blessed man is. And as you read through it, you get this picture of someone who is completely delighting in God, is a man of integrity and uprightness. He's always fruitful, and he stands in um, the judgment over the evil people. And again, I think you read through that, and you see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, the Lord Jesus Christ is the man that Psalm 1 describes. I don't know anybody who... Um, doesn't ever do any, you know, those things that you see in Psalm 1. I don't know anybody whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on, he, on the law he meditates day and night. I mean, Jesus Christ is the only one that perfectly always sought the Father's desire and will. And so you see a description of Christ as the blessed man who is able to judge in Psalm 1. And then in Psalm 2, Christ is the one who is to be kissed um, lest people fall under his judgment as well. And so I think that sets us up well in being able to read through the rest of the Psalms um, with an eye for how does this point me to Christ or help me make sense out of my life in Christ. Um, but that also doesn't mean that we pass by the historical setting of the Psalm either. Um, we take into account the writer of the psalm, the, the, the context of what he's, what's going on, if we can know that context of what's being said. But from our vantage point, we just see the story of redemption completed more fully. We look back. David's like looking forward to the promised Messiah and Redeemer coming, and he sees his life in this particular period of time of expectation where we stand from our vantage point. We look back and we see that the Redeemer has always already come, and Jesus himself tells us that all the prophets and all the psalms um, and all the law testify to him. So we look back on the psalms, and we're, we're asking ourselves the question, how um, is this um, creating an expectation for Christ? And from our vantage point, how does that expectation fulfilled in Christ? 
And so we're looking for him. He, he is our hope. He is the source of our salvation. Um, and that's good for us to remember as well. And then I think about, just again, one last thing before we get into Psalm 41. Um, I think about how often David is represented in the Psalms. Um, David wrote every psalm in book one other than one and two and ten and thirty-three. And he could have written those too, but they don't have, the scriptures don't directly tell us that he wrote those. So David is like the man that's oftentimes depicted in the psalm. He's the primary, outside of God, he's the primary character. And yet think about how often David describes himself and displays um, his life. He's oftentimes described as one who's being needy, independent, and a sinner. But at the same time, he's also described as one who is trusting, prayerful, and encouraged. And so he's this combination of one who is weak and needy and mindful of his sinfulness, and yet he's also um, trusting in God, prayerful to God, and encouraged by where he is as well. And I'm like, man, that's a lot like us. Like, that describes a lot of us. At times we're, we're encouraged, at the next moment we're discouraged. At times we are strong, and other times we're weak. At times we're really good at being prayerful, other times we just are squeaking out a few words. And that's how David describes himself. And again, I think that just all the more attests to the fact that we can look at David and where he's going, what he's going through and find some companionship in him. But the psalm is never like, be like David. Because David is, we're already like David. Like we're weak and we're needy and we're helpless and we need a greater hope and a greater help. And in that way, we go, well, who does David cry to? And he cries out to the Lord. And who is the Lord? Well, it's the triune God. But especially as this triune God has revealed himself in the Son to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as David's looking to the Lord, we with David are looking to the Lord together. And we, again, we see that tonight in Psalm 41. So all of that was just extra free of charge now for you to get what you paid for. Um, we're going to get into Psalm 41. So I'm going to read through it and then I want to I want to work it, work our way through it a little bit and hopefully by God's grace be encouraged and strengthened by our time together in Psalm 41. Um, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed, and in, in his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me 
in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Um, I've titled this psalm, quite simply, I am weak, he is strong. I like to try and think of, come, you know, just think of how the psalm encapsulates what the, the heart of the, the message is. And as I'm reading through this throughout the week, um, I'm just noticing more and more the weakness of David and the strength of the Lord. And like that, I can relate with that. Um, I am weak, but he is strong. We, we are weak, but he is strong. And that's a good reminder for us. Um, the overview of the psalm, I think, is helpful as well. You look at verses 1 through 3, and he's making statements about who God is. Verses 4 through 9, he's then identifying his own sinful condition and what's going on in his life. Verse 10 is his appeal to the Lord. Verse 11 and 12, reminder of his salvation and where it comes from. And then verse 13 ends with this praise to God. And as I created that outline, I looked at it and I, I thought to myself, man, that's just a wonderful structure for prayer. Just off the top. If you're looking for a structure um, of how to pray, where to start, what to include, how to finish, I think this psalm gives us a really great structure for that. You start out with statements about God and his goodness in particular, like David does. You confess your own sinful condition, and you, 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 you um, tell of the Lord what it is that's going on in your life. You appeal to the Lord for his mercy and his grace to be poured out on you. You re remind yourself of his salvation and his character, and again, of who he is as being our God. And then you finish with a note of praise and thanking him for who he is and what he's capable of doing in our lives. So I thought that's helpful as an overview of the psalm in particular. Um, looking at David's context and what he's talking about here, we begin in verses 1 through 3. God is described and his actions are described to the one who considers the poor and the poor themselves. In verse 1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, I look at this and I go back to what it is that I read in Psalm 40, verse 17, and I see what David says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. And then in Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. And so, so David acknowledges his poverty. The word poor there means to be weak, to be afflicted. Um, it can have physical connotation to it, but it also has spiritual connotation to it as well. David sees himself as one spiritually who is weak, who is afflicted. He's struggling under the weight of his own sin. We see that in verse 4. He's got his enemies surrounding him. We see that in verses 5 through um, 9. And then he has not just his enemies, but this intimate friend that like stabs him in the back and betrays him. And that adds to it as well. And if anybody in this room has ever been betrayed by someone very, very close to you, a good friend, a, a, um, a relative that was very near to you, then, then you know how this feels. 
and what insult to injury looks like when something like this happens. Um, but yet he knows that who God is, and he knows that God, um, blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him to him being the one who is considerate of, of the poor, but not just the one who is considerate of the poor, but actually the, the poor himself. Um, and you see that the way that God moves and works in the life who is mindful of those who are spiritually weak and afflicted. The Lord protects him. The Lord keeps him alive. He is blessed in the land. You don't give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In the illness, you restore him to health. This is how the Lord is toward the one who is mindful about the condition of the weak and spiritually afflicted. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But then you see um, in verses 4 through 9 how David then describes himself and actually who he calls out to. What's interesting is that in verse 4, you would think that David just describes, right, there is this man who is blessed by God, who is considered of the poor. David is poor, so it would make sense that David David would then cry out to the one who considers the poor. But David's cry is not to the one who considers the poor per se. It's to the Lord himself. His, David sees that he has like direct communication and access to, to the God of creation, and the God of all the universe. And so he cries out to him, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. Why? For I have sinned against you. And this, I have to tell you, this is a key component in honest repentance and calling out to God is that you are mindful of your sinfulness and you confess your sinfulness specifically. You don't just say, oh, I messed up a little bit, you know, or I did this, or no, you, you call it what it is, as being sinful in the eyes of the Lord, and in that honesty, you lay it out before him and you make your appeal to the Lord to be gracious and merciful to you. Um, he, he acknowledges his sin, he tells of the Lord, um, that his enemies are present. There's an intimate betrayer at hand. And what's interesting is that in verse 8, the enemies actually view death as being the worst thing that could happen to him. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. In the eyes of the enemy, death is the worst thing that can happen. We know as believers, though, that death is not the worst. Um, There's a song by Sovereign Grace Music that's titled, It Is Not Death to Die. And it's just this beautiful song of, um, it is not death to die. Um, when When you hear God, like, turn the knob and open the door, and it's an entrance into seeing and beholding unparalleled, exquisite beauty and majesty Death for the believer is not the worst. Um, It is difficult to deal with, for sure. But in the eyes of the enemy, death is what is final. And that's what the enemy is is looking for. And again, that sets us up to see, I think, another component of this psalm, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, David appeals to God's grace in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. He's... He knows and is trusting in in that um, God is for his people. David knows that God is for his people. 
And that provides a tremendous amount of encouragement and the reason why he can turn to the Lord and pray. And then in verses 11 and 12, David displays confidence in God's providence and the purposes for him at this time in his life. He would say to the Lord, by this I know that you delight in me, that my enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. How is it that David is able to say that even though he's struggling with his sin, he's been betrayed by an intimate friend, the enemies are around him, that God still delights in him and that ultimately the enemy will not shout and triumph over him? Because on one hand, he completely trusts in God's providence and provision. The weight of his sin that he feels is providential by God. The enemies being around him and afflicting him, providential by God. His intimate friend betraying him and stabbing him in the back, providential by God. But he knows in the end it will not lead to his failure and destruction. But he's looking to the Lord and he knows that God is upholding him in the midst of it as well. And then at the end, he's extolling God for his greatness, specifically his eternality, um, which we could say a lot about as it applies to this, but we'll just suffice it to say that it's God's eternality and his sovereignty, which is the bedrock for his ability to endure weakness and affliction. And the double amen at the end is like, is just him doubling down on his trust and confidence in God, like amen and amen. He knows it to be true. So in some ways, um, there's a lot that is relatable for us and helpful for us. David is an example of one who lives in a covenant union with God and his expectation for mercy, deliverance, God's purposes are based on that relationship. And the same can be said for us by virtue of our relationship with God in Christ. Like we can sing this song and we can pray these same things and find ourselves in um, good fellowship with David um, because we have a covenant relationship with the same God that he has a covenant relationship with. And there's a lot that's helpful for us in that way. And I think that that's good. But I think that there's another layer below this that helps us see and, and enjoy and savor the Christ that's spoken about in this psalm as well that needs to be acknowledged. And I think, I, you know, I found it helpful. I'm doing my study. For those of you who maybe care, maybe you don't, I don't know. Um, like, I always save my commentary research for, like, the very end, and just to make sure I'm not way off in left field with some things, and so I came to Spurgeon's. I'm always reading his Treasury of David, and this is what Spurgeon says about this psalm. Jesus Christ, betrayed of Judas Iscariot, is evidently the great theme of this psalm, and all his people are in their measure like him. Hence, words suitable to the great representative are most applicable to those who are in the Lord. I mean, there's Jesus, verse 9 itself, which we'll get to in a moment, but is, is, is what Jesus says about Judas. This intimate friend has lifted his heel against me and betrayed me. But I want to just, I want us to notice a few ways that I think the psalm helps point us to Christ. Number one um, I was reminded that in Luke 4.18, Jesus tells us that he is the proclaimer of good news to the poor. That was his mission that he came to do, that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. And so once we can see that Christ's role is to proclaim good news to the poor, then we can also see easily how verses 1 through 3 
are pointing us to Jesus and him being the one who is blessed by the Father because he is the one who considers the poor. And you could read it like this. Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. The Lord, or Jesus, the Lord Jesus protects and keeps alive. The Lord Jesus is called blessed in the land. The Lord Jesus is not given up to the will of his enemies. The Lord Jesus is sustained on his sickbed, and the, the Lord Jesus in his illness is restored to full health. I don't know any human being that this could directly apply to by virtue of their goodness and kindness to those who are in poverty. Because there are people among us that all the time are mindful of the poor, give their money to the poor, but there are people among us all the time that live that way and they don't get out of the sickbed and they aren't restored to full health. But this, Jesus Christ is. He never, he tasted death, but he was victorious and now still lives. He is the one that considers the poor and he is the one that is um, kept alive he is the one that is truly blessed. He is the one that is ultimately not given up to the will of his enemies and sustained and restored to full health. Another way that we can see Christ in this psalm is in verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Because God is the one who blesses the one who considers the poor, i.e. the Father blesses the Son, David's appeal to the Lord for forgiveness of sin is an appeal to Christ, the only place where forgiveness is found. God is gracious and heal those, heals those who confess their sin to him. And David's cry for the grace of God to be poured out in his life because of his sin is an appeal to God. He may not know completely that it's an appeal to the Son, but we know that there's forgiveness found nowhere else than in the Son. And so we can see Christ pictured in that way as well. Um, specifically in verses 5 through 9, we see how Jesus was treated to accomplish this forgiveness for our sins. And if you read verses 5 through 9, you see the way that Christ was treated. The enemies say of him in malice, when will he die and his name perish? This is what like the crowds want. They want Christ's death. People's hearts are gathering iniquity. All who hate him whisper together and they imagine the worst for him. I think about the, all the people that were secretly plotting to put him to death, the Pharisees, because they didn't like what he had to teach. And then specifically in verse 9, Jesus quotes as, being ref as referring to him and how the enemy treats him. And so everything that the enemy does to David is a picture of what it is that the enemy is doing to Christ. And I think that that's helpful for us as well in that um, it reminds us of God's his, his sympathy and his goodness towards us when we are in our weakness and affliction because he himself has faced those same things. Um, John Calvin would say this about verse 9 in particular. Certainly we ought to understand that although David speaks of himself in this psalm, yet he speaks not as, to, as a common and private person, but as the one represented in the person of Christ. Inasmuch as we, as it were, the example after which the whole church should be conformed, 
a point well entitled to our attention in order that each of us may prepare himself for the same condition. Namely, that if Christ was persecuted and suffered in this way, that those who were in Christ should expect the same thing. It was necessary that what was begun in David should be fully accomplished in Christ, and therefore it must of necessity come to pass that the same thing should be fulfilled in each of his members, namely, that they should not only suffer from external violence and force, but also from the internal foes ever ready to betray them, even as Paul declares that the church shall be assailed not only by fighting without, but also by fears within, 2 Corinthians 7. Calvin clearly saw this as being a picture and pointing to Christ and by virtue applicable to everybody who is in Christ. Because Christ was assaulted and assailed by the enemy, everybody in Christ can expect the same thing. And that's why the New Testament is replete with warnings to the believers to understand that you will suffer if you intend to enter into the kingdom of God. Trials and tribulations are coming your way because this world is not your home and you are found in him. And the world rejected him, and so it will reject you as well. And then lastly, again in verses 11 and 12, I don't know anybody who could say this with honesty other than Christ. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. There's only one person that can truly say that I am upheld because of my own integrity to the point where I can be set in your presence forever, God, and that's Christ. But yet, this is the good news that's available to everybody who is in Christ. We know that because the Father delights in the Son, that He delights in everybody who is in the Son. And not just, He doesn't just love you because He has to love you because you're in the Son. Like He actually delights in you and loves you. Like before the foundation of the world, He predestined you in love. Like He called your name on purpose. Like it was an accident. He didn't go, uh, Brittany, oh, I meant Brian, shoot. Like, he specifically knows his people, calls them by name in great love and affection, and he delights in his children. Even if you can't say it's because of your own integrity, but it's because of his. And he delights in all of his children because he delights in his son and because of the integrity and the perfection and the righteousness of the son we shall stand in his presence forever. And that's wonderful news. To know that we will not be overcome and that the enemy will not shout in triumph over us, for Christ has been victorious. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the life that you've given to us in Christ. We thank you for your word that reminds us of that life in him. We thank you for what it is that Christ endured on our behalf. Because of his righteousness, his perfection, his integrity, we can stand here now knowing that the enemy will not shout and triumph over us. 
Yes, he assails. He shoots his fiery darts. Things are put into our way and the desires of our flesh respond to those things poorly. But yet, you are always constant for your people, delighting in them. And David, like he got it, he, he had a picture of it. He understood a picture of it. He knew that he appealed to your grace, never to his own goodness, never to his own merits, never even to his own integrity. He always knew that his position in you, with you depended completely upon your grace and goodness in his life. And that is the same for us. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us and turn our hearts and our affections to you more regularly, more fully, so that you might be glorified and we might be encouraged and built up. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If everyone can please stand and we will.